All right, hopefully that's actually recording now. I think we, we missed the first half of the service on the audio recording. We're going to spend some time to, to go to the Lord now together in prayer. And uh, I've already had a number of folks approach with, with prayer requests, and I'll, uh, I'll put that out here again in just a moment. I wanted to share a couple of requests uh, just as we get started. Um, those of you who haven't heard, uh, a week ago, Sunday afternoon, Charlie Parnell passed away. Um, and, uh, and so please be in prayer for his friends and family as well. Uh, we've got a lot of grieving people in our congregation over Charlie and in our community as well. Um, so um, that's one thing I want to mention. Another, another prayer request I'd like to um, just ask that you, you pray for me this morning and for um, my, my family, particularly my dad's side of the family. My grandfather passed away um, early this morning, and so pray for his, his, uh, his wife, Marlene Jewett, um, and my dad and, and our family. So uh, my dad called me this morning just as I'd printed off the sermon. I was up in my office early, and uh, uh, immediately went to prayer. I'm just so thankful for Jesus. So thankful for the hope that we have in the face of death. And my grandfather knew the Lord, and he knows the Lord now in a way that he never did while he was alive. Face to face. face. And the the same is true for Charlie and for all who die in the Lord. And it's a wonderful hope that we have. It's a wonderful hope. It's a strong hope. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Also wanted to mention, I don't know where Bill and Millie this, are this morning. I assume Millie's still not feeling well. She hasn't been uh, for the last week or so. So keep her in prayer. And Bill as well as he supports her. Any, any prayer requests that I don't have written here on a prayer slip that we want to bring before the Lord? I have the one for the food pantry, yes. Kevin. Praise God. Praise God. Those of you who didn't hear, Kevin, Kevin's most recent scans this past week show no growth in the cancer, and that's really where he's been the last couple of years. So praise God. That's, that's answered prayer. And um, uh, I know Kevin was mentioning the other day because he, he'll typically throw every year now since the diagnosis an I'm still alive party. And at, at the last scan, he was telling me the doctor said, you can throw another one this year. So... Praise God. All right, let's, let's go to the Lord together now in prayer. Father, we, we come to you this, this morning because you are God. You are our creator, our maker. You know us intimately well. 
You number every hair on our heads. You number every grain of sand on the seashore. You number the stars in the heavens and you give them their names. You named them when you made them. You are powerful beyond our comprehension. You are kind, Lord, beyond our understanding. And as we grow in our knowledge of you, we, we, as soon as we, we feel like we might get, be getting near the bottom, we realize we've, we've only touched the surface. We can't fathom all that you are. You are amazing, God. We praise you. We thank you, especially for your love that you've, great love that you've shown for us in Jesus. You are our God. We are the people of your pasture the sheep of your hand. We confess this morning, Lord, that like sheep we often go astray. We often fall into sin, to temptation. Your commands are clear to love you, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, we, we know that's a high standard. And as, as we grow in Christ, we realize how high that standard really is. So we confess, Lord, we we fall short very often. We take, we take a moment, no, Lord, now as a congregation to confess our sins silently unto you as we, as we come into your presence. And we pray with the psalmist, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. With you, Lord, there is steadfast love. And in the name of Jesus, we have found plentiful redemption. We we come to you this morning, Father, and ask for forgiveness with confidence. Not wondering if you'll ask our request or begging as if, if we ask if, if only we ask rightly, maybe you'll grant our request. We ask boldly in Jesus' name because we know how perfect Christ's work on the cross really is to cleanse us from all our sin and all our iniquity. We know how great the promises are in the New Testament that for all who call on your name, you give, you give us the right to become children of God. Through Christ's blood, we ask, Lord, that you'd free us from the guilt, the shame, and the power of sin. And by your Spirit, that you would lead us to walk in newness of life. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We come, Lord, with... Um, Many prayers heavy on our hearts. Uh, Lord, we think of those especially who are not with us. We, we pray for Bill and Millie. Pray that you'd be with them, be with Millie's physical health, and pray that they'd be led to worship you on this Lord's Day. We pray for Dean and Beth Bartlett, who are also not with us. We pray that you'd be with them as they care for their family. Lord, we lift up to you um, Allison, 
Uh, we thank you, Lord, for her. We pray that you continue to sustain her and keep her as she walks through the valley of the shadow of death, just as we were. We heard earlier from Psalm 23, you're our good shepherd, pray that you'd shepherd Allison and sit her down, Lord, at a, a feasting table in the midst of difficulty. Pray for uh, her sister, Andrea, as well. Pray that you'd sustain her, keep her. Pray that you'd teach her, Lord, to lean on Jesus and everything. Pray for Jim as well. Pray that you'd do a great work in his heart. Lord, we pray for many who are grieving this morning. I lift up my family, my dad, uh, my Grammy. Pray that you'd be with them. Comfort them with the gospel of Christ that they know so well. Pray for all those, Lord, who, who loved and love Charlie Parnell. And what a loss for our church family and for our community. Thank you for what, a, what an example of, of steadfast faithfulness in the faith he was. What a ministry he had at this church for many years as a deacon and uh, as a lay preacher. And Lord, we thank you for him. And what a gift he was. Pray that he be with all his friends and family as they grieve. Lord, I lift up to you the, the Moody and the Harrison family uh, who've lost, lost Be uh, Betty Randall. And uh, I pray that you'd comfort them in their grief. That you promise, Lord, that you comfort all those who mourn. I pray that you would do that uh, for the Moody and the Harrison family. And we also pray for healing for Betty's daughter, Nancy, that she be, be made well in her body as well as in her soul. Father, we, we thank you for our brother, Alex, who's not here with us, but he had an operation for his cancer, and it went well, and he's got no cancer in his body. And we praise you for that, Lord. We've been praying for him. Uh, what an, what an, a clearly answered prayer. And we just, we praise you. We thank you for the way you sustain and keep us for each, each day uh, of our lives that you give us here on this earth. We know you know each one of them. They're in your book. We trust you, Lord, for each one of them. None of us are assured of the next day, but we thank you for each one as it comes. Knowing each day is a gift from you. We praise you. We thank you for Kevin and his, uh, that he's well, Lord. Uh, that the cancer is at bay, um, it's still there, but he's, he's able to lead a, uh, Lord, a, a fruitful and a joyful life. We, we thank you, Lord, for each day that he's given. We, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the work day we were able to have yesterday. What a joyful time of fellowship that was. and uh, Wonderful, Lord, to see the, the property shape up. And so we, we, we praise you. Thank you most of all, Lord, for the people that were there and um, some 16 or so folks there, and uh, what a joy that was to be able to, to gather with your people and do some hard work. We pray for, uh, Lord, for Pastor Nick Gilbert, friend of Steve Wadsworth, and he's going to have open heart surgery at Mass General on the 28th, and we, we lift him up to you, pray that surgery would go well. Pray that you give the, the doctors steady hands and wisdom as to what exactly to do. Pray that you'd bring him through that surgery and, uh, and restore him to health. Lord, as you've been faithful to do for so many, even, even Steve Wadsworth himself, Lord, we, we, 
again, praising you. Thank you for the physical deliverance you've shown in his life. And uh, we thank you, Father. Pray for Richard Vinton, who has colon cancer. Pray that you'd be with him, that you'd rid his body of cancer, Lord, if it be your will. You'd bring healing to him. Pray for Sarah Calvert as well. She continues uh, a lengthy and a difficult medical ordeal with her liver. And uh, pray, Lord, that she'd be able to to be to to be healed, Lord. You're the great physician. You're able to do anything, Lord, if it be your will. And we, we ask, Lord, that you'd work powerfully in, in her body. You'd bring her to health and that you'd be glorified in that. She'd be able to look back and say, it was because the Lord healed me. We pray for the Joy Hadzel's family, Lord, for Randy and Joy. We thank you for them and their, their part in this body. Uh, we, we ask, Lord, that... Um, You'd continue to strengthen them as they're apart from us because of COVID. They'd be able to return soon. We also pray for Nate and Thelma Fuller, who uh, who came by the food pantry. Pray that you'd be with them, Lord. We don't know their uh, their spiritual state, but we pray that as we were able to to provide them with food in the food pantry, you'd you'd provide them with spiritual food. You'd be doing a work in their hearts that they would um, they would know what true food is from heaven, Lord. And your son Jesus spoke spoke about the uh, the bread he had that his disciples knew not of, which was to do the will of his Father. And we uh, we thank you, Lord, for the the spiritual food we find in Jesus. Pray that you'd be at work in our church, Lord. We think uh, uh, a couple more of a couple more folks, Lord, who are not with us this morning, of Herm, of Shirley Freeman and her family. Pray that you'd continue to show faithfulness to those families, to those individuals. Uh, Lord, that you'd um, continue to sustain Herm. You continue to sustain Shirley as she cares for Devin and Dakota. Thank you that we were able to see those boys yesterday. Pray that you'd continue to be at work in this church. We know you have great plans. Uh, we know you're at work. We ask that you'd just enable us to see where you're working and help us to join in on what you're doing. Pray that you bring revival to this congregation, to this town, to this state. Pray that we'd see revival in this state in our lifetime. That uh, the state of Maine would spark with spiritual life and light of flame the whole country, Lord. We lift up the uh, gospel-preaching churches in our area, Lord. There's many of them, and I can't even mention them all this morning, but I specifically lift up Appleton Baptist, Palermo Christian, Veracity Chapel, Christ the King Church, Little River, Lord. There's many, many solid churches in our area preaching the word of God. We don't, we don't want to just pray selfishly for revival here. We want to see revival break out. Amen. New spiritual life. Pray that by your word and by your spirit, many people would be coming to life in Jesus, that they would be born again, that you'd use our churches to do that, that you'd cull out, Lord, any, uh, 
any sort of spiritual deadness, anything in our church congregations that would hinder us from effective ministry, that you'd make us clean vessels, pure vessels, ready for your service. You do great things among us by your spirit. We know it's all, it would be all of your grace, Lord. That's why we're not saying we want to work up revival. We're saying we need you to work revival here by your spirit. And so we ask for that this morning. We ask that you bless the work of all the missionaries that we support uh, locally and abroad. We think of Lord of uh, Zoe Women's Center, of Fairhaven Camps, of New England Bible College. We pray that you'd support those ministries as they minister to the people of Maine. Uh, it's a very different people, Lord. I pray that you'd bless Fairhaven as they minister to children this summer. I pray that you'd enable them to have camp like normal this summer and be able to minister to many as close to normal as possible. I pray that you'd continue to bless the work of Zoe Women's Center as they minister to pregnant women in the Midcoast area. We lift up to you, New England Bible College, as they raise up uh, men for the ministry in this state. And uh, we pray that you'd, in this generation, you'd fill the churches and the pulpits of, of this state with, with men who are on fire for your word, who stand on your word, that they'd be lit aflame by the Spirit. We pray abroad, Lord, for the Strouts and for Isaiah 61 ministries, the Goodinos, Lord. Pray that you be with both of those families. Bless their ministries, sustain them, use them for your work. We look forward to what you're going to do the rest of this morning, Father. We ask that you'd bless, um, bless our efforts, Lord, as we labor in your word. That, um, as, as Kevin prayed earlier, that we'd be encouraged, strengthened, and convicted. You'd minister to our hearts in whatever ways we need. Have your way among us, Father. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The text for this morning is going to be found in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and beginning in verse 12, we're finally caught up with uh, where we left off at Palm Sunday. So we're picking up on the narrative after uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And after Jesus entered Jerusalem, instead of confronting the Roman authorities, like the Jews would have expected Messiah to do, Jesus confronted sin among his own people. We're going to read our passage together, and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd open our eyes to understand your word. That when we leave from here, we'd be enabled to worship you more wholeheartedly and obey you more joyfully, all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the least joyful experiences of my life was taking pre-calculus my junior year of high school. In the room right next to our pre-calculus class was a history class taught by a teacher whom we will call Mr. Hobart. That wasn't his name, but this isn't a flattering story. (laughs) Mr. Hobart had a habit of yelling at his classes. We don't know why. Perhaps there really was something to be angry about. But one day when Mr. Hobart began to rev up next door for yet another shouting match, our math teacher jokingly quipped, her theory about Mr. Hobart's yelling. Well, there goes Mr. Hobart, angry at history again. (laughs) Some people are just angry people. Angry people will always find something to be angry about. After a while, we actually learned to tune angry people out. Their anger sounds so important at first but we come to learn that it's not. There's not actually anything to be angry about. They're just angry at everything. It's a very different thing to see someone become angry who's usually calm and peaceable and serene. I don't know if you've ever seen someone, someone you know has proven themselves as a kind, loving, compassionate person become righteously enraged. Whenever that happens to someone I know and respect, I listen up. Because if he's angry, if she's angry, there must really be something to be upset about. Jesus was not an angry person. He is not. His life was not characterized by anger. But there were times when Jesus became angry, and this passage is one of them. Upon finding a fruitless fig tree, he cursed it. And upon entering a corrupted temple, he overturned it. When the God of Israel took on human flesh and entered his holy city, where his people were supposed to be worshiping him and his father in reverence, he found that their worship was corrupt and that their temple was as fruitless as the fig tree. Here's our big idea. Jesus will not stand for fruitless worship. 
Jesus will not stand for fruitless worship. Of all the things that Jesus could have been upset about in his time on earth, the one thing he made the most fuss about was how the Jews, his own people, had desecrated the temple and twisted their worship of God. Jesus will not stand for fruitless worship. And in this passage, Jesus communicated his distaste for fruitless worship in two ways. Two ways. First, in the very obvious overturning of the tables of the money changers. And secondly, in the more subtle symbolism of what he did by cursing the fig tree. Jesus communicated his distaste for fruitless worship, both by overturning tables and by cursing a tree. We're going to start with the tree. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Even in the days before Duncan and Circle K, there was still a way to get a snack on your way into town. <laughs> Jesus' preferred snack was apparently drive through figs. From a distance, Jesus saw the fig tree, saw that it was in leaf, which might have meant that it had figs, so he walked up to it in search of a satisfying snack. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now on its own, this comes across as a strange account. It sounds like the kind of ungracious reaction I might be tempted to have if I pulled through Duncan and discovered they were out of coffee. <laughs> I'm never coming here again. But that reaction would spring from my own sinful impatience and selfishness. That's not what's going on here. Jesus never sinned even when he couldn't find a snack. Jesus wasn't hangry here. He was making a point. It's not accidental that Jesus found the tree empty and cursed it. On the same day, he entered the temple and found it full of money changers. Notice how Mark decided to recount these events. Jesus encountered the fig tree in 12 through 14. Then he turned the tables in the temple in verses 15 through 19. And then bookending the account in 20 through 21, the disciples walked past the fig tree again and found that it was barren. This is what one commentator calls a Markin sandwich. We've talked about that before. Think about it like a literary fig Newton. Pastry, fig, pastry, right? <laughs> tree, temple, tree. Um, in the way Mark has encountered these historical events, he's put them together to make a point. The barren, book, the barren tree bookends the barren temple. And the way Jesus responded to the tree is supposed to help us understand what was about to happen in the temple. And what happened in the temple helps us understand why Jesus cursed the tree. So outside the city, Jesus encountered a fruitless tree. It had leaves. From afar, you could be confused and think that it might have fruit. But it was a fruitless fruit tree. It had all the appearance and the promise of fruit, but no fruit. As Jesus passed by that day, 
That tree was not doing the one thing fruit trees are supposed to do, bear fruit. And as Jesus entered the city, he was going to encounter another kind of fruitlessness, a fruitless temple. The temple had one job, to be consecrated to the worship of God. And Jesus did not find worship of God in the temple that day. It was fruitless. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Just give you a little background on the temple. But before it was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple was at the center of the life and the worship of the Jewish people. God had commanded the building of the temple, the original temple, under Solomon as a place for God's people to worship him, to confess their sins, to praise him. In his dedication, Solomon made clear God was not contained by the temple. But he did make his presence known in a very special way in the temple, on the temple mount in Jerusalem. That was where the Jews could meet with God. So Jewish people made the pilgrimage from all over, from wherever they lived, to come to the temple to worship just as God commanded them. And as Jesus entered the temple that day, it was a rebuilt temple as God had commanded after the return and then renovated by Herod. He entered the temple and he found a few groups at work. Some people were buying, some people were selling, and some people were money changing. Many of the people who came from a long way away to worship at the temple, they didn't want to transport animals all the way way to Jerusalem to sacrifice. If you're a Jew who lived in Greece and then took a boat to get there, you don't want to bring all your cattle and sheep to sacrifice. So... There at the temple, there was this huge demand for animals to be able to purchase, to sacrifice at the temple. So uh, where there's a a, a need, right, a a demand, the supply floods in. All kinds of merchants operated at the temple to sell animals to these travelers. It's going to be helpful in understanding this to know just where these merchants were setting up. In the temple, right, you've got the the Holy of Holies right in the center. No one's allowed in there except the high priest on occasion. And then outside the Holy of Holies, you've got the kind of the outer temple where they burned incense. And then outside of the building itself, the priests were offering sacrifice. Then outside of there, you've got the the court of the, the men where Jewish men were allowed to come in to offer animals to sacrifice and then the court of the women where all Jews were allowed to come and worship and then outside of all that this is the important thing was a much larger courtyard called the court of the Gentiles and that was as close as non-Jewish people could get to the temple and to the presence of God and that's where all these money changers were operating they weren't in the holy of holies right they're in this courtyard that really was part of the temple that was supposed to be dedicated to the Gentiles being able to worship God. That holy place, which was supposed to be set apart for worship, had instead been infested with merchants operating on a huge scale. Historians tell us 
that some merchants offered as many as 3,000 sheep for sale in one day at, in the court of the Gentiles. So it's thousands of heads of livestock here in the court of the Gentiles. The place of worship had been turned into a place of commerce. The place of prayer substituted by a place of greed. And Jesus had had enough. So he flipped their tables and threw over their chairs and physically kept people from carrying things through the temple. The only thing you really needed in the temple if you were there to worship was yourself and perhaps an animal to sacrifice. You didn't need to be carrying all your groceries through the temple. And apparently, some people lived close enough, historians tell us this, that, that people would actually make a short a shortcut across the court of the Gentiles to get from one place to another. They'd be carrying their groceries or whatever, jars of goods and that kind of thing. And that's what Jesus was shutting down here. Not only these money changers, um, but also people just going about their daily business, walking through the holy place like it was a common street. Jesus had had enough of their flippant, irreverent, convenience-focused treatment of the one place on earth which should have been sacred for the worship of God. Verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship there. The nations were supposed to be able to come and pray to God in just the place where all these merchants, crooked merchants, who Jesus calls robbers, had set up their shop. So he cast them out. You can imagine the picture. These thousands of animals and people being herded out down the stairs. He cast them out. And in verse 17, Jesus quotes from two key Old Testament texts to explain the problem of what's going on. First he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. And that's a direct quotation from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56 verse 7. It's from the Lord's vision to Isaiah where he encourages Gentile believers in God non-Jews, that they too have a place in God's temple, that they too have a place in God's family. It's an amazing passage with some amazing promises of God's blessing and presence, not just to Israel, but to everyone, to the whole world, anyone who will come to God in faith. And if God's blessing and presence was supposed to be open to any nation, how dare these merchants fill the court of the Gentiles with this worldly hubbub? How dare they keep the nations from worship? And this offense in the temple, according to Jesus, was a symptom of a larger spiritual malady among the people. Jesus didn't just stop with Isaiah 56. Next, he quoted Jeremiah 7, verse 11. You have made it a den of robbers. Jeremiah, in his day, was railing against God's people in a time when everyone professed great faith in God and love for the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple, they would say. But their lives were in rebellion against their God. The temple, the temple, the temple, they would say, but they tolerated all kinds of evil in the land. 
Jeremiah names just a few of those evils in Jeremiah 7. Oppression of the poor, shedding of innocent blood, stealing, murder, adultery, deception, idol worship. That's just the beginning of the list. And yet these people in Jeremiah's day still had the gall to traipse into the temple and play pretend like they were so holy. That's why Jeremiah calls it a den of robbers. What looked like a holy gathering in the temple was actually an assembly of evil. Though they met in the temple, they were no better than a gathering of petty thieves. And Jesus recalled all that and accused the people of his day of the same kind of religious hypocrisy. They thought they looked so holy, traipsing into God's temple, but the money changers trampling the court showed the truth. The people of God in Jesus' day had little regard for right, reverent worship of God. And Jesus wasn't afraid to say it, which made him dangerous to the religious authorities who held sway over this den of robbers dressed up like a temple. Jesus was a threat, verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The crowd was astonished. Jesus had their attention. His bold attack on the people's corrupted worship struck a chord, and that made him dangerous. He who has the ear of the people strikes fear in their rulers. Jesus' direct attack on Israel's corrupted worship catapulted him onto the high priest's most wanted list. And that wound him up on a cross not long afterward. The one thing which raised Jesus' ire, which made him most righteously angry in his ministry, was fruitless, corrupted worship. When he entered the temple, which should have been in bloom with the righteous worship, both from the people of Israel and from all the nations, he found no such fruit. Instead, he found robbers trampling the court of the nations. He went to look for fruit from the temple of God and instead found none. And Jesus will not stand for fruitless worship. It should lead us to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves as a church, as individuals, if our worship resembles at all the fruitless, corrupted worship of the temple in Jesus' day. We want to avoid the errors of the temple of Jesus' day, which more than anything left a bitter taste in his mouth. We don't want our worship to leave a bitter taste in Jesus' mouth. So first we should ask ourselves, is our worship tainted by desire for wealth or gain? Like those money changers who who, uh, upsold these poor pilgrims in order for them to be able to offer sacrifice. Some so-called Christian teachers in our day put a stain on the name of Christ by their money-grubbing TV tactics. Some of the most visible so-called pastors in our day have turned their houses of prayer into dens of robbers. And God will bring judgment on those so-called churches. We should also ask ourselves if our worship is tainted by exclusivism. 
By filling the court of the Gentiles with sheep and goats and doves for sale, the Jews had crowded out any opportunity for prayer for non-Jews. We should ask ourselves, is our corporate worship open to anyone who would come? Could this really be a house of prayer for all people? Another danger to watch out for is treating holy things casually. In other words, let's not take shortcuts across the court of the Gentiles. We live in a, a pragmatic, results-driven, practical society. What's wrong with taking a shortcut across the court of the Gentiles? What's wrong is that that place was set aside for worship by command of God. Don't trample it. We don't have a temple today. I'll say more on this later. But this, this church building is not holy like the temple is holy. If you project over-protectionism of this building to visitors of this building, they will feel like intruders and understand that you actually care more about this building than you care about them. So please do not make a one-to-one -one correlation between the temple courts and this building. There's no holy of holies here. There's no ark. We'll talk more about where the presence of God lives in a few moments. But do ask yourself this. I think this is the correlation between the court of the Gentiles and our spiritual lives today. Do we have time and place set aside for worship of God, and do we keep that holy? Weekly on Sunday, Sunday, do I guard the time I set aside to worship with God's people? Is it something I protect even if it's not practical? Walking around the temple wasn't practical, but it honored God. It set aside that place as holy. Setting aside Sunday mornings for worship doesn't always feel practical, especially if you're not in the habit, but it honors God with your time. It's a way of saying practically with your alarm clock, there's actually nothing more important to me than worship of God. Everything else in my life can be flexible, but worship of God can't. Of course, there's, always, there's, there's obviously legitimate reasons for not being able to join the worship of God, but... We ought to guard it carefully. When worship of God becomes the flexible thing in our lives, it becomes obvious that worship of God is not the priority. Same principle with our family and our private devotions. Do we short, shortcut across our daily time with God? Do we allow practical considerations to track their muddy footprints across time we should be using for prayer and scripture intake? Because to do so long-term is neither practical nor safe. We could dig into more here in terms of fruitless worship and lessons from the temple, but we've got more ground to cover. We still have more to learn from the temple and the fig tree. Remember our, our fig Newton? Tree, temple, tree. The fruitless tree on the way in anticipated and illustrated the fruitless temple that Jesus was about to encounter. And the next day, after the temple, they passed by the tree again, and again the tree had something to teach about the temple. Verse 19. When evening came, they went out of the city, and they passed, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Remember what Jesus had said to the tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It was a sort of a curse, and it was effective. Just the next day, the tree was withered, and not just its leaves or its branches, it was dead all the way to its roots. The way Mark sets up this account, I don't see any way around connecting the tree to the temple. The fruitlessness of the tree on the way in anticipated the temple fruitlessness Jesus was about to encounter. And in the same way, on the other side of the sandwich, the withering of the tree was also about the temple. The great fruitless temple of Jerusalem would soon wither like that tree all the way to its roots. Jesus came, he found the worship of his people lacking, and very soon he would, in a sense, curse the fruitless temple, foretelling its doom. We'll look more in depth at that prediction in a few weeks, but today I just want to quote it briefly, Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, referring to the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down to the roots. Jesus predicted that the age of the temple was soon to be over. The time of Israel's worship of God in the temple would soon come crashing down. And in 70 AD, Jesus' words were vindicated. It did. After a Jewish revolt against Rome, Roman forces under Emperor Titus besieged Jerusalem and tore down the temple stone by stone. The temple withered all the way down to its roots. You can see the piles of rubble still today. Now for the Jews who hadn't believed in Jesus, the destruction of the temple was a great tragedy for them. The temple was the only place they could worship God and experience his presence. And in the center of the temple, walled off by that curtain, was the Holy of Holies, where God himself made his presence to dwell in a powerful way. With the destruction of the temple, all that was gone. And faithful Jews today still long for the rebuilding of the temple. But as Christians, we know that the destruction of the temple was not unexpected. First, Jesus predicted it. Just as he cursed the fig tree and it withered, so he pronounced that the temple would be destroyed, and it was. And the withering of the temple was not a tragedy. Any more than the destruction of a caterpillar is a tragedy as it turns into a butterfly. Jesus brought with him a new way, a better way than the temple to experience the presence of God. First of all, Jesus was God incarnate. He made the presence of known personally in a way that people could see, hear, and touch. But even beyond that, for those of us who today have not seen Jesus physically, Jesus is still a better way for us than the temple into the presence of God. This is made powerfully clear in Christ's death on the cross. 
in the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit and died, something momentous happened in the temple at Jerusalem. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple was supposed to protect the priests and the people from the presence of God. God's presence is so holy, so perfectly righteous, so good, that for sinful people to enter it would actually mean death. Usually you build a fortress to protect whatever's inside. Not so with the temple. The temple protected the people outside from the presence of God. Augustine's famous phrase was, um, our hearts are restless until we rest in thee. As human beings, we were actually created to experience God's presence. And to know, that's what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. We were, we were made for that. But our sin keeps us from him. It was in mercy that God put up that curtain to protect Israel from his presence. They could be close to him, approach his presence, but they couldn't enter without dying. As sinful people, we can't enter the presence of God without a holy God actually des destroying us by his own holiness. It's a conundrum, it's the problem of the human heart that we long for the presence of God, but we cannot enter it because of our own sin and guilt. And as Jesus died, as the curtain tore in two, not ripped by men from bottom to top, but by God from top to bottom, Jesus bore on himself the sins of all who believe in him. He bore on himself the Father's wrath against all our sin. He died the death we would die were we to face God's presence in our sinful state. He died for us in our place. And in that moment, we stopped needing a temple to protect ourselves from the unmediated presence of God. God so God tore the curtain. And 40 years later, he saw to it that the whole temple was torn down. We don't need any temple to protect ourselves from the presence of God anymore. Jesus paved the way for us to live in God's presence without any dividing walls. In a promise to a lowly Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, Jesus made the most revolutionary promise about how worship was about to change forever. John 4 verse 21 the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem at the temple will you worship the Father. In other words, it's about to become irrelevant, the whole temple thing. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Friends, the temple has withered like a fig tree. It's gone, and something better has come. If you want to know God, to worship him in his presence, you don't have to go to a particular city or a particular building. All you have to do is cry out to God in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus, and he will give you his spirit. And he will dwell within you. And you will be able to know him in a way that God's people in the Old Covenant only dreamed of. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're the temple. As Christians... God's presence by His Spirit actually lives inside us. What a gift. What a marvelous thing. We're God's little temples. And we as God's people together are actually being built into a better temple than Solomon or Herod could ever build. Ephesians 2 verses 19 and 20. So then you, he's talking to Christians as a whole, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are God's temple. Something even better than Herod's great temple has come. God dwelling among his people without walls and curtains. Jesus' death and resurrection is enough, sufficient, to usher us into God's presence directly by the presence of his Holy Spirit within us. There are a number of implications out of this. One result is that we should understand that there's nothing inherently special about this building that makes it suitable for worship, other than that it's big enough and it's got a nice high ceiling and it's got a microphone and stuff. We often call this room a sanctuary. I think that's okay, as long as we know what, what we mean by it. Sanctuary means consecrated place. It means holy place, a place set apart. The temple had a sanctuary. It was a holy place in a sense that this is not. There was the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was above the cherubim, where God's glory dwelt. This isn't that kind of sanctuary. We we don't have a Holy of Holies somewhere. There's no curtain there's nowhere in this building where you can go where God's viscerally present holiness will strike you down God isn't present with his people in a temple made by hands anymore God would be just as present as if we met in the community building or in the 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 gym at the elementary school He is present among us by his people, by his Holy Spirit living in his people. 
We are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the people of God, the, the church, which means gathering. It's the gathering of the people of God. We're the new household of God. We're the temple. And as a people, we've decided to use this room to gather, right? We've set it apart. We've consecrated it for worship in that sense. So it's okay to call this a sanctuary. It's a place that's been set apart for a purpose, for worship. It's okay to call it a sanctuary as long as we understand that the temple hasn't been replaced by church buildings. The temple has been replaced by the people who go to church buildings. We, the people of God, are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. One thing I'm resistant to in church buildings is to have an overly exalted altar. I think it's wonderful to have a table here to remind us of the centrality of the Lord's Supper. But some Christian traditions so venerate the table that they turn it into a kind of holy place. So people even bow to the table as they go by. As if the front of the room was where God's glory dwells. It's not. This is not a temple. And that's the reason why I like the decorating style of old New England churches like this. It's very simple. Our Puritan forebears had an idea that the glory of church buildings isn't about the beauty of the room. As beautiful as many churches are, and I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with a beautiful building, as long as we understand that the glory of a church building is all about the people who are in it and the God who inhabits them. There's a lot of beautiful church buildings out there with dead churches where the glory of God has departed. Herod's temple may have been the most beautiful building in the ancient world, but Jesus saw it for what it was, a den of robbers. My prayer is that as we worship faithfully and fruitfully in a simple building, we would be so filled with the presence and glory of God that God would look on us and see a beautiful thing, more beautiful even than Herod's temple. Any building where the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God to worship the Son of God to the glory of God, that's the most beautiful building in the world. That's fruitful worship. Remember our big idea. Jesus will not stand for fruitless worship. And I think in the ways that we talked about earlier, we should examine our hearts to see if our personal and our corporate habits resemble those of the corrupted temple. But we should be comforted too to know that the onus isn't just on us to get our act together and worship better. Jesus saw to it personally that the old temple was torn down so that we could come to know a new way to worship, a better way, a fruitful way, by the power of his Spirit. He has put his Spirit in our hearts, and we have known his presence. And it is his joy to renovate our hearts into fruitful temples of the Spirit. If you're feeling convicted this morning that your worship has been conflicted or dry or fruitless, hypocritical, half-hearted, pragmatic, selfish, in any way resembling the worship that Jesus so strongly condemned, confess it to God, 
Turn from your sin. Turn from fruitless worship and turn to God. Beg him to soften you by his spirit, to open you up and turn you into a fruitful temple of the Holy Spirit. It's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for all of us. He loves to answer that kind of prayer. The temple was always meant to be temporary, a placeholder for a new and a better way. In this age, we can know God by his spirit without curtains or walls, but an even better way is coming. I want to close on this. When God restores and remakes the heavens and the earth and rebuilds a new Jerusalem where his people will live forever, there will not be a temple there. In his revelation, the Apostle John proclaimed with joy, there will be a temple there. Why was he so joyful? Revelation 21, verses 22 through 26, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. For those who know Christ, who have believed in him and heard his voice and followed him, we will dwell with God forever in that new city. And we won't need a temple, because God himself will dwell with us and Christ himself, the Lamb. His presence will so illuminate our lives, we won't even need the sun anymore. And in that day, all the nations, all the kings of the earth, will bring their glory into God's presence. There will be no court of the Gentiles on the new earth. Anyone who would come in may come in, if they come by faith in Jesus. And the people of God in the new Jerusalem will bloom forever in fruitfulness. A tree that will never go out of season. A fruitful fig tree in which Jesus will rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this is a serious passage having to do with something which made Christ very angry. So we want to take it seriously and, and to examine our hearts to root out, Lord, any corruption or fruitlessness in our worship. We're, we're sinners. All of us are imperfect, Lord. And I, I confess just personally this week being convicted by this passage. I want to root out any selfishness or hypocrisy may remain in my worship that Christ, you would, be, you would be glorified, that you would rejoice the way I gather with your people. So we pray for all of us, Lord, that we would, be, we would be a fruitful fig tree planted on the hill in liberty, that we would bear fruit in season to your glory. We look forward, Lord, especially in the light of so much loss in our community, we rejoice in the hope of a new Jerusalem one day which will not have a temple. 
where we will dwell with your people and all those who've gone before us in the light of your presence forever. We long for that day. We so look forward to it. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we await that day to cleanse ourselves, that we might be temples of the Holy Spirit that honor, that honor the presence which lives inside us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in closing to number 403, Christ is made the sure foundation. And let's sing just the first verse in closing, 403.